The Talking Point on SAFM. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. Nine minutes past 11 on uh, SFM 104 to 107 Nationwide. Welcome to the third and final hour of the Talking Point here on SFM. Join the conversation whenever you want to on the number 086-000-2032, the SMS line 41391. That SMS comes to you at a rand 50. We're also on the WhatsApp line 0614104107. So the Gauteng Department of Health has urged those with missing family members to come forward as more than 900 unidentified bodies lie in the province's mortuaries. The department's forensic pathology services, FPS, in Gauteng have 938 unclaimed and unidentified bodies across their 11 mortuaries. We thought to use this opportunity to educate ourselves around these processes and also uh, for those foreign nationals who pass away in our country, uh, how their families uh, can claim them. One of the cases that has dominated the news is how Dr. Nandipa Magudumana allegedly stole three bodies in the Free State. Also, how was it assumed uh, that a body, for example, is burned in the prison cell? Is that of a Tabo Best? And the big question is how can something like this happen and what is the role of forensics in all of this? Stephen Fonsenka, your surname sounds like forensics, uh, <laughs> but he is manager for the African Center for uh, Medical Legal Systems at the ICRC in Southern Africa. It's a network of forensic practitioners across the African continent. So explain forensics like you are explaining it to a layman. Good morning. Yeah, good morning and thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so forensics, uh, most people would think of forensics as the various processes and procedures Mm -hmm. that would gather and interpret evidence for court Mm -hmm. for a criminal case. Mm -hmm. The International Committee of the Red Cross um, actually looks at it differently because we're looking at it from a humanitarian perspective. So forensics, and we talk about forensic sciences around medical legal systems, we're often talking about identification of human remains. Mm. And as you've mentioned in the last few weeks, I'm sure there's been lots of attention on the forensic practices Mm -hmm. um, around human identification. So if we say we have 900, uh, over 900 unclaimed uh, bodies, uh, what is the problem in regards to that identification? Nobody has claimed them. So this is not unique to South Africa mm-hmm. and not unique to Gauteng. So mm-hmm. I, need, you know, I think it's really important for us to look back at the history of, of missing persons and how missing persons procedures and investigations were conducted over the last 20 or 30 years. Mm. That. Before 20 years, missing persons were almost never talked about. Yes. And In the yeah. apartheid era, people uh, were buried unmarked. Correct. And, yeah. and, and, and sadly, to this day, that continues. Mm-hmm. However, forensics really got... That, that it really got some boost in the 90s with the, the advent of DNA. Um, there was also a lot more focus on other forensic disciplines. So as missing persons became a bigger public issue, mm-hmm. we were fortunate that universities and learning institutions, government laboratories and institutions also started to pick up 
the pick up the slack in 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 the delay sometimes of forensic sciences to support the community and affected populations. So perhaps I ask that question then, because in South Africa uh, we're well known for having a major uh, DNA backlog, uh, and as a result, a lot of criminal cases don't get solved timely because of the issue of uh, the DNA backlog. Uh, how does that link itself to the work that you do in in forensics and what is the state, therefore, of that whole process, DNA and forensics in South Africa? So, so DNA in South Africa is is highly advanced. Mm. Uh, you know, when when we look at, and again, I'm not speaking as a South African authority, but more sure. as a forensic specialist at, sure. with the International Committee of the Red Cross. We actually bring a number of Africans to South Africa to actually learn at the various institutions and even a couple of government government facilities. Mm. You mentioned Gauteng. Mm-hmm. Um, the Johannesburg Forensic Pathology Services run a human identification course that a number of people from around the world actually attend. So South Africa has very advanced forensic systems. They have strong legislation. They have good regulations. But they have an overwhelming number of cases. Mm. And we can kind of talk about that later. But, but all to say is that... With DNA, you know, it, it has changed the way that, that investigators look at missing persons cases today. It has certainly improved the, uh, the success rate of the identification process. We, in the past, it was primarily fingerprinting. Mm. And, and so if there wasn't a national fingerprint database, as we do see in today in South Africa, it really relied on families coming forward and actually doing a visual recognition. But it sounds to me like it still does. And, uh, you know, when I get an ID, one of the requirements is that, you know, uh, I fingerprint and my fingerprints are unique. If I, you know, somebody dies and um, they they are not claimed yeah. by relatives, family members, whoever, how come they don't use that very fingerprint to say, this is person X, and yeah. the last we checked, person X was registered to live at place Y? Right. So the, the the one issue is whether the whether there's competent investigations into these unidentified bodies. People often think that everybody that goes to a government mortuary is a homicide case. And in fact, that's just not correct. Mm. We have so many different types of cases. Many of them are not actually criminal. It could be somebody who dies in a traffic accident. It could be somebody who's died from suicide. It could, you know, there's so many different cases that come into a medical legal system. Mm-hmm. And so I think police prioritize that. And with such high case loads in South Africa, you, you're asking investigators to manage so many cases and explore so many leads, it really becomes quite overwhelming. Mm-hmm. The other part of that is that um, forensics is always about comparison. Mm. You're always comparing you know, apples to apples, you mm-hmm. know, fingerprint to fingerprint. That's why a database is important. Incredibly important mm-hmm. with the right protections. Mm-hmm. So um, as you say, you know, if there was a, if there's a national fingerprint database and that person is registered with the country, with home affairs, that fingerprint, as, as long as the body is in a suitable condition to be fingerprinted and the person taking the fingerprint is trained and competent to do so, you should get a, you should get a hit on the, on the database. The problem in South Africa is that many people are not necessarily on that fingerprint database. And if we look in Africa, a lot of countries don't have national fingerprint databases. So when we start looking at people who may have come into South Africa and you you want to backtrack where they came from, first of all, when you look in the mortuary and, you know, stand in the middle of a mortuary and look around, who's the migrant? 
Yeah. Everybody is just is a just, dead body. It's an unidentified person. It's someone who the the local um, people in the mortuary are so desperate to identify, but they need something to compare against. And that's where sometimes the public don't realize that it's not just about the, the, the deceased person and what you can get from the person. It's so much about the family coming forward. Yeah. Is it is it a, a, a you know, a, a, a big profession in terms of, uh, you know, demand? Are there a lot of people getting into the profession, uh, which in my mind would make uh, the processes a lot faster because there's more of you as forensic experts? Yeah, so that's, this is an excellent question for Africa overall. Mm. I think that there's a little bit of a taboo around the dead. So that definitely presents a little bit of a spanner for us as we try to build capacity. Nobody wants to work with the yeah, dead. Yeah, and sadly, and yet it's so rewarding. Um, but, you know, there have been a lot of TV shows. There has been a lot of sort of media attention on forensics, which and it sounds awful, but it has a, it's made it a little sexier. So we do see a lot more people coming into the, the profession. The, the problem is it's one thing to get the education, but forensics is so much about expertise and experience, mm. and that takes years. So we and, and, and in forensics, we always look at a multidisciplinary approach. Mm-hmm. It, when, when you have a family who's lost someone and they come forward, you know, the police officer should be taking information about the circumstances of that disappearance, but very detailed information about what they look like, or they, do they have scars, marks, tattoos, previous injuries? Then, is there a DNA sample that can be collected either from the person, and, uh, from the effects of that individual, or from the family? So it could be a familial association. You want you want somebody dealing with the family to include the family as much as they can in the in the investigation and get as much from them, because when you are looking for somebody alive or dead you don't know what you're actually going to end up using to confirm the identity. So one of the things you said earlier is that, you know, if, if uh, you know, the fingerprints is still usable, what is the lifespan of it after somebody has, has uh, sort of passed? Uh, h- how far can the body stay while it's uh, still fingerprintable, if that's a word? So excellent question. I wish I could give you a number of days, but it really depends on how long it took somebody to be found in the first place before mm. they even got to the mortuary, mm. what conditions they were, what condition they were in, what exposure um, they were, they, you know, what, what was the environment uh, in which they were found. So we know that hands are exposed, faces are exposed when somebody's lying in the felt or if they're in water. And so it's quite, it's quite easy for scavengers to target those areas. And so they can actually ruin the hands, they can actually predate or scavenge on the face. And these are the, these are the key identification areas of the body. I know, it's a, I know it's very gruesome, but then even when a body goes to a mortuary, people think that's where decomposition stops, and that's not true. The body is, is, is stored in a refrigerated facility between two and four degrees, sometimes six degrees. So it's essentially a fridge. And like you would have food go off in a fridge at home, so too do people continue to and decompose. Load and <laughs> well, thankfully, from what I understand in South Africa, the the mortuaries are excluded from load shedding, mm-hmm. which is which is critically important because it comes back to dignity. Mm. Um, you know, every single body in that mortuary 
is a person, yes. a human being. And everybody's loved by somebody, no matter who Absolutely. they are. Absolutely. And that's the tragedy. I mean, I'm, I've been doing this for 25 years. Mm. Um, and the family actually teach you how to do your job mm. you know you can get as much education as you like you can you can be scientifically brilliant you can be technically you know very proficient but actually the, when you start working with families and you understand how important it is for them to find their loved one and on the other side when you look at a deceased person in a mortuary and think that could be your mother your father your brother or sister what are you prepared to do to ensure that that body goes back to a family. That's how you start learning to become a true humanitarian um, in the forensic world. So there's a lot of movement, um, migrant uh, uh, movement, uh, particularly in the African continent, and uh, there's a lot of uh, sometimes undocumented um, yes. migrants. How do you deal with that? How do you deal, uh, you know, because you, you talk of the issue of decomposition and yeah. that, you know, a fridge is a fridge is a fridge. Uh, stuff can go off even yeah. if it's sitting in the fridge. So I'm going to ask a time question again, yeah. because if somebody is not being claimed, I'm going to assume there's a degree of decomposition that Absolutely. continues happening the longer they are not claimed. So what happens? How, uh, if a person has been there for 100 days, for example, how does anybody even know who they are and how can their family come and even claim them so once again it's it's what you're explaining is the problem that that the whole world is dealing with is that w families have to be connected to a particular mortuary mm. and most families around the world would not know where to contact mm. uh, the authorities how to actually link themselves to a particular case in another country so that in itself presents huge challenges for the authorities with jurisdiction over the human remains. Mm. Because they, again, they've got nobody to come and ultimately do a visual recognition or to provide DNA and other, other materials to help identify the body. So when we start talking about irregular migration and people that are not necessarily registered, don't have their fingerprints in the system, they are really vulnerable to remaining unidentified. And that, uh, what happens typically in a mortuary is the there's an autopsy, a post-mortem examination in a medical legal institution. That's that's almost the first step, right? We, we want to ensure we understand cause and manner of death. We want to ensure that the body and all the evidence on that body is preserved and protected to be collected as evidence if mm -hmm. there is a criminal case. The second part is what is being collected from that body to ensure that person is identified. Mm. And we don't see consistency in mortuaries across Africa in terms of how much information what is collected. What is supposed to be collected? Everything. So it's, uh, people will be amazed how much information can be collected from even a decomposed body. It's more difficult, but you have to do it. Mm. So right from eye color, hair, hair length, hairstyle, all the way to the names and labels on clothing. Has somebody got a tear in their jeans? What size shoes do they wear? Mm. Do they have something unique on their body, a tattoo, a mark? Is there an anomaly, some pe some previous injury that you'll pick up um, when an x-ray is taken of the body? Mm -hmm. So you can see that there was something else. This person probably went to hospital. In more recent times, more elderly people actually have um, reconstructed knees, you know, um, reconstructed hips. And so with these hip replacements, you get a lot of actual um, foreign material, the, the replacement items mm -hmm. that are all serial coded. 
So being able to track that back to a hospital, for instance, is a really good opportunity for an, a forensic investigator. So there's, there's a lot of information that you're collecting, again, with the samples, the DNA, the fingerprints, the photographs, awaiting that comparison to be made, awaiting, for, awaiting that other material that you need from the missing person, family, and, and sometimes accomplices and associates, depending on the circumstances. So um, I'm going to assume those are the, the kind of questions you sort of asked if, uh, you know, time has lapsed, uh, yeah. that, that, that you ask family when they do come and claim a body, did they have a tattoo? What were they wearing, exactly. et cetera? Yeah, and the worst thing you can do is, you know, ask a family to, and I've seen this, unfortunately, in a number of cases, the worst thing is to ask a family to walk through a mortuary and look at a number oh. of bodies. What we realized in disasters as well is that families are often, um, they often misidentify their loved one. Because Has of that the, happened? It happens frequently and particularly in large scale events, disasters, family are emotional, they're traumatized, they're put in circumstances where... And it's where important for them to bury someone. Exactly. The pressure is on them. They're desperate to find their loved one, their relative, and they make mistakes. A body is lying down while they're standing up. Bodies look different when people are lying down because their tissue falls back. The body might not be as well preserved anymore. The body may have gone through trauma that yeah. really sort of you know creates an additional challenges for the family. So it's up to the forensic specialists to ensure that weight is, weight is associated with the identification method. And sometimes, even though families are adamant that this is their loved one, you still do DNA or fingerprints and you find that it's actually not true, that they've made the mistake. Please put your headphones on because yeah, there's somebody who's sent us um, a voice note uh, so you can hear what they have to say. Let's hear that voice note. Good morning, KG. You know, you're talking about DNA testing and, and who to link the body to and things like that. Why don't South Africa start or promulgate a ruling or a law where you take DNA from a child when it's born and you take DNA from the parents when they have children? So that way you'd already have both parents and every child. And in a year, you'd have... 1.5 million children plus 3 million parents. That's 4.5 million people every year that you can do. Uh, do you want to respond? Yeah, absolutely. This, okay. is a, this is a question that comes up, and, and it, sounds, it sounds very logical and mm -hmm. reasonable. However, there are huge personal protection issues around that. Mm. So, Like? So someone's DNA, when you're taking a DNA sample, yeah. this is their code. This is who they are. Yes. Um, how that sample's used, what, it, what databases it goes into, who gets access to all of this incredibly personal information, mm. can it be misused? Can it be abused? Um, so families can take their child's DNA. It would literally cost a few, you know, a couple of dollars. Yeah. They, you know, there's lots of kits today where families can take their own children's fingerprints. They can take their own DNA. Mm -hmm. I applaud any family who takes who takes that that information because you don't know when something might happen. So you keep that like you keep photo albums. Yeah, the 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 one challenge that ma they may face is that if it has to be admitted to court, there's no, it's not going to withstand sort of the chain of continuity and mm -hmm. custody, etc. But this is a humanitarian forensic action.
when a, when a loved one is lost, they, you know, that's the first step that you can take is submit that sample mm. and say, I have a direct sample for the person who's missing. People don't realize that a direct sample from the actual missing person before they disappeared, mm. and it's something that we're advocating for in conflict for combatants, is far stronger than the familial biological samples. And it's far cheaper. You only have to take one, one sample from that missing person, whereas if you're looking to make a family association in DNA, you may have to take multiple samples. Yeah. I know that you spoke about uh, people ultimately claiming uh, the, 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 the wrong bodies yeah. as a result of misidentifying uh, their loved ones. And, and I know also that you didn't come here to talk about the famous case that uh, <laughs> all South Africans are talking about uh, today. But the one thing that I want to ask you a question about when I come back from news uh, regards that, that, that famous case, and I apologize apologize ahead of time if uh, that's not what you wanted to talk about. In that case, somebody took three bodies uh, from a mortuary. And I wanted to ask, how does that happen? How does how does somebody just walk in and say, I'm taking body X, Y, and Z, they're mine, I'm out, I'm gone. So we can talk about that uh, when we come back from the news headlines. It's 11.30. Gamuhelo Teledi is standing by with the news headlines. Welcome back. It's 11.31. So we've been talking to Stephen Fonsenka, manager for the African Center for Medical Legal Systems at the ICRC in Southern Africa. It's a network of forensic practitioners across the African continent. Do you want to respond to that question before I ask you other questions? Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's something I wondered about. How do you walk into a mortuary and pick up three bodies and be allowed to leave them? How does that work? So I'm going to preface my response with a good forensic investigator doesn't comment on other people's cases unless mm. they know, mm. it, you know, in deep detail what, mm. the, what the actual facts are. Um, plus, ICRC is neutral and independent and not Sure, sure, sure. Um, for me, clearly, the three people that were taken, those are people, mm. not just bodies, mm. is more for me a concern uh, in terms of who were the family? Mm. Are the families ever going to get those bodies back? Yeah. How, how long have the families been waiting for answers on where loved ones have gone? How long have they been looking for them? Correct. Yeah. So every time, you know, we, 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 everybody's looking at the crime. Um, for me, I'm looking at the this people is, this before is a the humanitarian crime. tragedy. And, and so we look at this generally. Mm. The, there are ways to standardize and centralize all mortuary operations. And, and, and South African mortuaries have those processes. Mm -hmm. So those do, those, you know, when, when something like that happens, as it, uh, as it is alleged, obviously it's going to make the news because it's unusual. Yeah. It's not the norm. It's a break from normality. So, so that in itself should give us some confidence mm. that there are systems in place, there are structures, and when some, something like that happens, it becomes an investigation yeah. because it's not the norm. So um, I'm reading a, a WhatsApp message. Good morning, KG and your guest. What is the difference between forensics and ballistics? Sean Nero in Cape Town. So ballistics is, you'll, you'll have ballistics as part of your forensic investigation. The ballistics is, is looking at the, the, the weapon and the projectile of that particular weapon in a forensic sort of mindset. So you might be looking at the trajectory and when a bullet hits a, the body and goes into the body, 
the bullet may move around, it, it, it leads to various injuries, the bullet would be recovered, it would be matched back to a particular weapon, hopefully, that it was involved in the crime. That's where ballistics comes in. It's, it's dealing more with the firearm. Whereas forensics, forensics is a general, it's a huge term. It's like saying medicine. Mm. You know, you've got oncology, gynecology, obstetric, you know. So, so when we talk forensics, it, just, the, just forensic identification of human beings, we're talking about forensic pathology, yeah. forensic anthropology, forensic archaeology, odontology, entomology, and toxicology. And the list goes on and on I and on. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Okay, you've got your headphones on. We have yeah. another two uh, voice notes that have come through. Let's hear them, Mark. Morning, KG. Thanks for playing my message. I just wanted to know, sort of thing, what's the difference between taking someone's DNA and taking their fingerprints and everything like that for their drivers and ID and passports and what have you. Um, surely all of that information should go into a state database and be protected with people only having access um, very specifically. And I think having DNA and everything like that would be far more beneficial than prejudicial to the person because bone marrow transplants, you have a database of everyone's DNA who is, um, you know, can be used or can be contacted. It's like blood typing and stuff like that. So I think the benefits far outweigh the negatives. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's play the next one, then he'll respond to both of them. I hope you're well, this is anonymous. Uh, KJ, I just want to make a small contribution to your topic. Uh, I'm sure most of the bodies of dead people lying in government mortuaries are migrants. Uh, KG, this is a sign that uh, governmental or inter-country cooperation is very important. Uh, forensics can never be complete without another government tapping into another government's information. Uh, African governments should try by all means to cooperate in every sphere of life. People are more connected than however ever we think. Now, mm-hmm. government departments has to, to scramble around to find out who is who, who is who in Moshari when people are dead. And the, that means the basics of, informa- of people's information doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I wish that government departments or countries should cooperate at each and every level for the sake of people. Yeah, he makes a very great point. Brilliant point, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So the yeah, the first the first part, um, you, you know, we're very comfortable providing our our fingerprints. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've provided fingerprints for decades, mm-hmm. and so people are very comfortable for that. Comfortable with that, you know. Yes, you can use it um, nefariously. You could you could potentially use fingerprints, you know, for the wrong purposes, but DNA you can really, <laughs> it really um, is a violation of your, your whole being. My person. You are, as an, I mean, the fingerprint is only your finger. It's yeah. only the, the ridges on the finger. But the DNA is coding you completely. Yeah. And we, we see every year how much more we're learning from forensic, just from forensic DNA or forensic genetics. Today, we, 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 even in forensics, we're starting to look at phenotyping and we're starting to look at what, what from, from the DNA, what color eyes somebody has. Do mm. they, are the earlobes attached or not? Ooh. So you can imagine how much information is sitting in that DNA sample. It is true 
that we do need DNA. Uh, we do we need national DNA base, databases. Yeah. South Africa has one. Many countries in Africa don't. Um, with the proper protections, it is absolutely vital to respond to the second caller's um, at, um, suggestion. States do need to start collaborating with states. Mm. There is a process through Interpol where you can communicate between police department and police department, state to state, but there isn't a, a centralized registry of information. Um, and again, we go back to, so you've got somebody sitting in a Johannesburg mortuary who's not identified. Where do you start to look in the world? Yes. That person. So Because you don't know them. You don't know where they come yeah. from. What we are looking at, though, with the ICRC, with international partners, is two interesting um, sort of uh, research uh, yeah. elements. Yeah. The one is Africans still participate in cultural scarification. And that scarification, particularly in places like South Sudan, Nigeria, I mean, even in South Africa, is very unique to a community. Mm -hmm. So that's why when you're doing a head-to-toe -to -head examination in a mortuary and you notice these little nicks on the face, these little scars, keloid scars, etc. You can at least say they come from this tribe. Yes, yeah. and that puts us back to the community where somebody originated from. Yeah. And then we can pursue the family, get information out to the families who might be missing someone. Yeah. The second one is really interesting and makes us all look like like uh, forensic scientific nerds, but uh, forensic stable isotope analysis. Basically, you are you, you are your environment. Your, the chemistry in your body reflects the environment that you grew up in and, and what you're living in today. People in rural communities, particularly in Africa, eat rural food, subsistence yes. farming, yes. and water. Yes. They're drinking local water. What that does is between the ages of zero and five, that those chemicals actually are cemented into your first premolar, your, one of your one of the teeth in your in your, really? in your mouth, and they what we what we've learned is that that it doesn't change much, which becomes almost like an environmental fingerprint. Mm. So when and again, there's a lot of research needed, but it is a very exciting sort of uh, it's an exciting bridge that could actually be built between all of these unidentified people and where they actually originated from. Ultimately, though, we're here because, you know, the Gauteng uh, Department has made a call that 938 uh, bodies remain unclaimed. That's 938 people whose families don't know where they are. So, I mean, knowing all that we know, and if somebody's listening and they're missing a loved one for one or other reason, and they might suspect they're in this 938, but like we've established time has lapsed. What sort of information would you urge them to think about before they go into the mortuaries to look for their loved ones? What other kind of detail, if you may, that they should remember uh, succinctly about their loved ones? Brilliant. Um, first of all, they should be going to a police department, right? To oh, they go to the to police first. Yeah, to yeah. report the missing person. Mm, of course. Because they may go to a, a local mortuary when, in fact, the person died somewhere else mm. and went into a different mortuary. Mm -hmm. So the records might actually not be um, transferable. Um, when we do what we call it anti-mortem data collection, or we call missing persons reports, the interview with the family takes about two hours, mm. two to three hours. Mm, that's not long. That's not small. Yeah. And it's not a lot to ask of a family, mm. um, uh, and it's not, and and it's almost an expectation, because you want to get to know the family. You want them to see 
that you're genuinely interested in actually solving their case, mm. not there just to take a missing persons report and file it. Sure. So solving a case means collecting details, getting to know the and, and the family have the details. And people always seem to default to, well, just take a DNA sample. Most identifications could be made without DNA. Most people could actually give me enough descriptive traits where the weight of those descriptive traits combined is far stronger than a familial DNA profile match. Oh, wow. So, so again, we have to go back to basics, and police officers need to be trained to conduct proper missing persons investigations where they know exactly how to ask questions. When Do you, they know how to gather enough information to help the forensics? So The police, that is. So, again, I work from, and I, I'll give you an African perspective. In my opinion, no, mm. because the first the first part of getting that information is is having a rapport. Mm. And you walk into a into somebody's home in a rural community, they fear the police potentially. They're not sure. They lack they may have lack of confidence in the in the state. You have to overcome that because the family's not going to give you the details that you need mm -hmm. if you don't have a rapport and they know you're working in their best interest. Mm. The second part is technical. You know, when somebody says uh, in part of my interviews, I've said, uh, did, did your loved one ever suffer an injury, you know, that required hospitalization, for instance? Mm. You know, and they'll say, often they, you know, suddenly I'm asking a question out of the blue for them. It, they have to think 10 years, 20 years, 30 years back. Mm. They'll say no. And I'll have to go back and say, you have a, you have a boy, you know, your son, did he ever ride a bicycle? Mm. Did he ever fall out of a tree? Mm. Did he, you know, it's not just asking the question, it's re-asking it because there's almost certainly going to be an injury there that just wasn't listed by the family. Because there was a life lived. That's correct. So how do people get in touch with uh, uh, your organization, the uh, African Center for Medical Legal Systems? So we have a website, um, missingpersons.icrc.org, O-R-G. Um, there is a huge amount of information on global missing programs, on things for practitioners to learn from, but also for families to join and become part of the community. Okay. Thank you. This was very enlightening. I was Thank scared you. to have this conversation, but <laughs> I learned a lot myself. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. For time. Stephen Fonsenka is a manager for the African Center for Medical Legal Systems at the ICRC Southern Africa. Update at noon comes at 12. Don't forget the full circle with Bridget Masinga 1 to 3. The producers of this show, the ones that get people to fight with me, Lebo Musu and Kanya Bonani, will be back again tomorrow. It's 11.44.